We'll take your Bibles and turn back to the text we were looking at last week, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, a passage that is, I think, familiar to most of us who have walked with the Lord for any length of time, and um, a verse that, uh, a couple of verses, a text that we could easily just breeze over, but there's so much here for us to consider, and that's exactly what it says, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. One of our family's favorite summertime memories is camping on Orcas Island, which is in the Puget Sound up in Washington, where my wife Kelly is from. And when our kids were younger, they loved it because it was the only time they ever got to play with fire. And uh, there's a little pyromaniac in all of us, right? Um, just give us a fire and, and, a, and a stick and, and we're good to go. And that's what they would do. The, the fire pit was always in the center of the campsite and we would all sit around it every night uh, after supper and every morning as we were making breakfast and our kids would like to take a stick and catch the tip on fire and then wave it around in the air. And I uh, thought that was fun, sending smoke signals and things like that, but... After the kids went to bed, Kelly and I would sit there staring into the fire and just be hypnotized by the glowing embers. And when the fire eventually died down, it was time for us to go to bed. One of us would put out the fire by either dousing it with water or, more commonly, just spreading out the coals. And you know this about fire. As long as, as the coals in a fire are touching one another, they, they keep burning. But as soon as you separate them, what happens? They go out. If a red-hot coal gets pulled out of the fire, it slowly dies out, but it also quickly reignites as soon as you push it back into the fire. You've all messed around in the fire, right? You've done that. You've pulled out a hot burning coal and you've just watched it kind of uh, just die out and then you just shove it back in there and all of a sudden it it reignites. I think it's the same for you and I as Christians. If we get pulled away from one another we will slowly die out spiritually. The church is like a campfire where Christ's followers gather together around one another. And what do we do when we gather together around the campfire here at church? We stir one another up and we keep each other's souls on fire for the Lord and we inspire one another and we spur each other on in our walk with Christ. I mentioned the last few weeks in this series on why we come to church, I've, I've found two little book, books that I have found very helpful and have been very refreshing just to read over, nothing radically new uh, or insightful, but just a, just a good reminder. One of those books is How to Walk into Church. Well, let me quote again from... Tony Payne, he said this, quote, this is a vital aspect of what we do when we gather together in the assembly of forgiven sinners that we call church. We spur one another on. We encourage and help one another. We testify to each other about who Jesus is and what he has done. We speak the word of God to each other because that's where Jesus reveals himself to us and all that he has said and done. We remind and exhort and teach one another about these wonderful truths, and we correct and admonish and train each other so that we might not only hold fast to our trust in Christ, but abound in love and good works as we wait and long and pray for his return and for the revelation of that great heavenly assembly of which we are all members. And just as we are all members together of God's great assembly, so we are all needed at church. We all have a role to play in encouraging and helping and spurring one another on. And then he said this, our aim at church should be to build up and encourage other people rather than thinking about how much we're getting out of it. I also want to quote again from Sam Alberry, who wrote uh, this other little booklet, Why Bother with Church? I mentioned it last week. And this is what he says, going off this idea that church is not about what we get out of it, but what we contribute to it. He said the focus, quote, is not primarily on what we do or don't get out of, what we do or don't get out of attending our church, but on what we can give to others. 
And then listen to this line. I think this is excellent. He says, church is not there for your entertainment as a consumer, but for you and others to find, and I would say give, encouragement as a contributor. Let me say that again. Church is not there for your entertainment as a consumer, but for you and others to find and give encouragement as a contributor. If our boringometer, talking about being bored with church, um, is based on whether we sang songs we liked or whether the sermon was relevant enough or short enough or scratching where we have been itching that week, then it could be a sign that we're going to church for our sake and not for the sake of others. He said we need to examine ourselves and ask not just whether the ministry team is doing all that they're meant to be doing, but whether as church members we're all doing all that we are meant to be doing. And then he says this, it is impossible to overstate the positive impact we can have on others if we're coming looking for ways in which to be an encouragement. And so we began talking about this last week based on what it says here in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 24 and 25, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And we, we said that the most basic answer to the question, why do you come to church, is because God commands me to. Isn't that true? Isn't this what, what this text teaches us? Since this is a, a clear command, it's not just a suggestion or a good idea, we can conclude that it's a sin to not come to church on a regular basis. Now, let me clarify that because some of you aren't, aren't, aren't liking the sound of that, right? It's a sin not to come to church on a regular basis. What do we call, call it when you disobey a clear command of Scripture? We call it sin, right? Now, does that mean you're sinning if you miss church when you're sick or maybe you're on vacation or other things like that? No, absolutely not. But if you are checking out a church on a regular basis for no good reason, that's a sin. Because the scripture says, don't forsake the assembling of yourself together, as the habit of some is. The point is simply this, that attending church is not an optional activity for a Christian. It's an absolute necessity. And again, I mentioned this last week. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian any more than you have to go home to be married. But if you think about that, If you want to remain intimate with your spouse, you're going to go home every day. And in the same way, if you want to stay intimate with Christ, you're going to go to church every week. And that's the issue, I think, that the writer of Hebrews was addressing here in Hebrews chapter 10. He was exhorting Jews who had, and and I would say Jewish believers here, who had converted from Judaism to Christianity and who had apparently stopped attending their local church and were, were either considering going back or had already gone back to a Jewish synagogue so they wouldn't have to experience persecution and ill treatment from unbelieving Jews. And so in verses 19 through 21, the writer here is exhorting these Jewish believers to appreciate and apply the blessings that Christ had provided them through his high, high priestly ministry on their behalf. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. What an amazing work that Christ accomplished for us, gaining or securing for us access to the holy of holies, that we can go before the Lord with confidence because of his sacrificial death on the cross, paying for our sin. Which leads the writer to give three specific exhortations here in verses 22, 23, and 24. Let us draw near with a sincere heart. In other words, in light of your blessings in Christ, in light of what Christ has accomplished for you as your high priest, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Those first two exhortations, let us draw near and let us hold fast, um, are focused on our relationship with the Lord. And so 
And, and this last exhortation, verse 24, and let us consider how to simulate one another to love and good deeds, is focused on our relationship with others. And so whenever we come to church, we need to be careful to maintain a dual focus. Uh, there's a vertical focus on God, and there's a horizontal, a horizontal fa- focus on others. And obviously, we come to church first and foremost to encounter God. And I want to make sure we don't forget that. We've been talking a lot about the horizontal level here on the front end of this series, and uh, hopefully we're going to get to more of the vertical here in weeks to come and why we come to church when, in regards to our relationship with God. But, uh, but, but we need to understand that, that first and foremost, we come to church to encounter God, to praise Him and to pray to Him and to sing to Him and to hear Him speak to us through the reading and the preaching of His Word. But we also come to church to encourage our fellow believers. So we come to encounter God and we come to encourage our fellow believers. Whenever we come together as the body of Christ, there's this constant interplay between encountering God and encouraging others. And this latter responsibility to encourage others is the focus of verses 24 and 25 here. And again, what what do we say? Last week, God requires all of us who he has called out of this world as his own to consistently and deliberately interact with other believers in order to encourage them and to be encouraged by them. In other words, we have a responsibility to one another. You can't just say, you know, and this would be easy to say, you know, Christianity would be great if it wasn't for the other Christians. Right? If it was just me and Jesus, man, this thing would be sweet. But it's these other Christians that I got to deal with. Well, Get used to it, because that's the way God designed it, that we have a responsibility to one another. I have a responsibility to you, you have a responsibility to me, we have a responsibility to each other uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as members of the body of Christ. You can't have Christ as your head, as your Lord, without being a part of his body. That's just the way it goes. You can't have God as your father and not have all the other Christians be your brothers and sisters, moms and dads, and be a one big family. Again, I pointed out last week that the command actually in these verses is the word consider. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's the command. But there's two participles. In other words, these are phrases that that support that command and tell you how this command is to be implemented. How do you consider stimulating one another's loving views? Well, first of all, you've got to be meeting together. You've got to be assembling together. And you also need to be encouraging one another. In other words, in order to obey this command or fulfill our responsibility to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, we need to be meeting together and encouraging each other. And our spiritual Survival depends on all of us sticking together and spurring each other on through our words and our examples and even our prayers. And when we don't come to church, we're leaving others literally, we said this word, forsaking our own assembling together means to leave someone in the lurch. I mean, you're, you're leaving the rest of the body of Christ in the lurch. When you miss church, you're, you're leaving your brothers and sisters hanging and Guess what? You're also leaving yourself hanging, hanging out to dry, as it were. What we're we're essentially saying is, you know what? I don't care whether you're encouraged or not, and oh, by the way, I don't really need your encouragement either. The fact is, all of us desperately need the constant corporate encouragement of fellow believers in light of the potentially hardening effects of indwelling sin. And again, return to Hebrews chapter 3. Just look back there. And this is where we ended last week. Looking at Hebrews chapter 3, which really sets the the tone for why the writer in Hebrews chapter 10 is so passionate that we encourage one another. Don't, Don't not meet together. You need to be meeting together. You need to be encouraging one another. You need to be considering how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Why do we need this encouragement? Well, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brethren. He's talking to believers here. He's addressing Christians here. That there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Now, is that possible? 
for a believer to have an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God? Apparently. But here's the word, what? What does it say in your Bibles? Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We know that can happen to believers, right? How many of you can honestly say your heart at, at, at points has been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Everybody admit that? Okay, a few, few honest people in here. The rest of you spiritual people, maybe you can just leave and come back next week. We'll just deal with, this is the remedial class, I guess, for us less spiritual people. We just sang that last song, how we're a debtor to God's grace. Why? Because we need his goodness to act like a fetter, a chain, to bind our what? Wandering heart to him. Why? Because our hearts are, what are we just saying? Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I feel it. Do you feel it? Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for the courts, thy courts above. What a great song to sing. Why, are we, why, why did somebody write that lyric so many years ago? And why are we still singing that lyric today? Because it's true. That's one of the most relevant, relatable lyrics that have ever been penned in all of the Christian hymnody. And it really reflects this passage here that we need to be careful, take care, be careful that you don't develop an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Don't let your heart be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I read from Paul Tripp's book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands last week as we wrapped up, and I chose not to read any more of it this morning just for the sake of time, but he has a, a, a really profound illustration in that book of how this process goes down. And he uses an example of a man in going to church, a man like many of us who are here this morning, and uh, we begin to grow dull spiritually, and uh, we begin to be tempted by that secretary at work, for example, and next thing you know, we're developing this relationship, and uh, our wife doesn't know about it, our kids don't know about it, her husband doesn't know about it, and, and this thing just kind of starts going down this slow, slippery path, and it, it all seems so f- innocent at first, but then it becomes... Um, evil, and our hearts become unbelieving, and we begin to fall away from the living God, and our hearts become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is scary. It's very deceitful. It's very uh, deceptive, and it's, it's, it's tricked the best of us, and so this is just a process that, that takes place, and and so we need to be honest and say, yeah, that, that could be me right there. Galatians 6.1, we, we know that verse well. It says, brethren, if you see someone overtaken in a fall, you are a spiritual restorer to one in the spirit of gentleness, watching yourself lest you too be, what? Tempted. So throughout the New Testament, we see this acknowledgement, hey, listen, you're not above this kind of stuff. You're not above developing this evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God and and letting your heart be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I often think about this verse when I come to church, and it's almost like um, some weeks are just harder than others and, and more tempting than the others, and sometimes the world is more attractive than others, and sometimes that besetting sin will rear its ugly head in my life on some week more than another week, and, and it's almost like I'm getting to church, and I'm just like, you know, and, and I'm, I'm treading water all week, and I'm starting to, you know, go down, and I got just my nose sticking out of the, and all of a sudden, you get here to church, and you get buoyed up, and you get kind of reacclimated, and you're like, what am I doing? What am I thinking? And it's just so refreshing to be back in together with the body of Christ, and to be reminded of, of who, whose we are. 
and why we're here. This is not, we're not here to serve ourselves and our flesh. We're here to serve and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you find that dynamic true in your life? That, that it's almost like you're, you, you take a big gulp of air here on Sunday morning, you're like, <gasps> and you hope it lasts all week until you get back here and you come back, you're like, <gasps> gasping for air, right? I need, a, I need that breath of fresh air in this, you know, stank world in which we live. Now, you realize that what the writer of Hebrews was exhorting Christians to do here we require something that is totally diametrically opposed to the trend in our culture, which is what? Living private lives in which we isolate ourselves from each other. One of my favorite books I've ever read is The Disciplines of a Godly Man by Kent Hughes. And in that book, he makes an interesting observation about modern suburban architecture. And we're kind of out in the suburbs, if you will, here. We can appreciate this. He says, long gone are the days when homes all had large front porches with easy access to the front door, enabling people to become quickly acquainted with others in the neighborhood. Isn't it true? I mean, we build these high privacy fences in our backyards. Uh, we have electric uh, garage door openers. You don't even have to get out of your car. You just kind of can, can back out and you can kind of just move in and you don't have to even engage your neighbors if you don't want. We have these elaborate theater, home theaters rooms that we have where we can just kind of be about us and ourselves. And again, nothing wrong with that necessarily, but it's just interesting um, to think about that it's not unusual these days that you might not even know the people who live immediately around your house. Why? Because we've built like walls and moats and things to keep everyone out. We want our privacy, we want our space. And so Hughes says we need to resist the lure of our architecture with its moats, drawbridges, and descending doors and overcome the technology of autonomy, the isolating lure of our televisions and, and DVRs. And most of all, he says this, we must overcome our privatized hearts for Christianity is a relationship with God and his people. Hear that? Christianity is not just a relationship with God. It's a relationship with God and his people. They're one and the same. Remember last week we said when, when Paul was knocked off his horse on the way to Damascus in, in Acts chapter 9, Jesus didn't say, Paul, why are you persecuting the church? What he said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? It was the same thing. You persecute the church, you persecute Christ. You persecute Christ, you persecute the church. Why? They're one and the same. He's the head of the body. You can't separate them. And so Hughes concludes, he says, God's truth is most effectively learned and lived in relationships. Relationships. And listen, God designed us with the need for relationships. What is Genesis 2.18 said? It's not good for a man to be what? Alone. Well, obviously that was talking specifically about God creating Eve to be a helpmate for Adam, but I think there's a, it's also a general statement about the nature of every human being, that we were designed by God to be relational beings. Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Interesting. Our? Really? Our? What is that all about? Well, I think that's the first reference to the Trinity in the Bible, that when you think of the Godhead, it's more than just one person, there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There's relationship within the Godhead. And so when it says we were created to let us make man in our image, there's this beautiful unified relationship enjoyed between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so he created us in that same image that we can enjoy that beautiful unified relationship with one another. And so our growth, our development physically and emotionally and spiritually is worked out in relationships. In other words, none of us are an island unto ourselves. None of us can make it alone. It's through relationships that we develop into who God wants us to be. And so consequently, those who don't take the time to cultivate relationships with other people will never be all that God wants them to be. And I'm convinced that this is one of the main reasons why so many Christians today are shallow and weak and immature because they're very surfacey 
when it comes to relationships within the body of Christ. They show up on Sunday and they wave, kind of keep everybody at arm's length, giving everybody the Heisman, you know, just kind of keeping everybody at the arm's length. And they come and they feel good about themselves at the game of church, check it off, and they go home. But they never really engaged anyone. And they never go beyond that during the week. So they've not developed close, intimate relationships with other believers who can strengthen them and support them and encourage them and, and, and stimulate them and counsel them and comfort them and pray for them and admonish them and hold them accountable to living according to the principles of God's word. I was just reminded again this week how important this is, just having the privilege of having dinner on Friday night with another couple in our church. And just, and just sitting together, and, and, and not necessarily as pastor and his wife and, you know, um, this couple, but just, just friends, just, just as friends, and, and, and just talking about the Lord, and uh, them reminding us of their testimony, and how they came to know Christ, and all the amazing uh, things that God did to save them, and it was just, it was so refreshing just to, just to talk about the things of the Lord. The point is this, God never expected us to live the Christian life alone, but together with the help and support and encouragement of other Christians. Listen, isolating yourself from other believers has a deadening, dulling effect in your life. Pull the little coal from the fire, that's you. You pull yourself away from the body of Christ, you're going to die out spiritually. On the other hand, regular interaction with other believers has a stimulating and sharpening effect in our lives. And we all need this stimulating, sharpening process to hone us into the likeness of Christ. I love Proverbs 27, 17. It's been the theme verse of our men's ministry since the day we started the church. Uh, as iron sharpens iron, so what? One man sharpens another. What a great analogy. You want you know, to sharpen something metal, you take another piece of metal and the sparks begin to fly, but that's how you sharpen a sword, is by applying that friction, that, 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 that pressure. How about, a, how about Ecclesiastes chapter 4? Turn back there just for a moment. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, this is one of my favorite verses, and it's just one of those verses that you could so easily miss as you go through the Old Testament, particularly in a book like Ecclesiastes, where you're like, Man, get me out of this thing. This is just like depressing. Um, what is Solomon's problem here? Um, but there's this a very fascinating little section here in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And we've looked at this verse in the past, but let me just remind you of it. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And again, Solomon throughout this book is, 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 is talking about things, sharing things that he's observed and that he's learned from watching and experiencing life. And notice what he says in Ecclesiastes 4, verse 8. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. So apparently, Solomon knew of a guy um, that had no family, no wife to provide for, no children to provide for, and yet he just was a workaholic, and he just worked and worked and worked, and, he was, and yet he was never satisfied with all that he earned, all that he accomplished. It was, a, it was all vanity. It was a grievous task. And so here's the context of this, of this loner, this person who lived his life in isolation, compared to what? Verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. How many times have Christians crashed and burned spiritually and nobody knew about it? Whose fault is that? Is that all the other Christians' fault or is that their fault? could be both. But if you're not engaged in relationship. With others, you wipe out spiritually, and I mean, you're out there going it alone. You fall, you're go, you say, I'm gonna, I can climb that mountain by myself, and you go falling off that, you, you misstep, and you fall down into the crevasse there, and you're climbing alone. Nobody's going to find you for days, weeks, months. You're a goner. 
just because you wanted to be a loner. But if you travel together, you climb together, and you're connected with other people, right? Tied together and carabining on and, and belaying one another. And listen, everybody, when you fall, everybody else knows because they feel it, and they catch you, and they save you. Great, great to picture here. How about this, verse 11? Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one be warmed alone? That's the campfire analogy. And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Again, this is all about relationship. Avoid living a private life where you've isolated yourself from others. Get involved in relationship. Get involved in community. Alistair McGrath, who's a British theologian, said this, quote, the Christian is not meant to be nor called to be a radical and solitary romantic wandering in isolated loneliness through the world. Rather, the Christian is called to be a member of a community. And that community is this right here, the local church. Now, the question is, back to... Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. What does this encouraging and stimulating and stirring up one another look like practically in the life of a local church, of a local body of believers like Lakeside Bible Church? Well, I don't know of any better way or more practical way to encourage you to be an encouragement to one another, than to consider the one another's of Scripture. The one another's of Scripture. That's what it actually says here. Um, let us consider how to stimulate, what's the word there? One another. To love and good deeds. I think that's the secret right there. That's the key to this whole thing. Is that, that little phrase, one another. Two words in English, only one word in the Greek, Alelone is the word, one another. It's used a hundred times all over the New Testament. From the lips of Jesus and the pens of Paul, Peter, James, and John. You read from Matthew to Revelation and you see it all over the place. One another, 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 one another. You say, okay, something's important about this because they keep saying it a lot. So I better key on this thing and figure this out. What is this one another concept? And I guess the simplest way to say it is that God has commanded us over and over and over and over and over and over and over again in the New Testament to one another, one another. You're like, what do you mean one another, one another? Well, when you look at all the one another commands, they can, there's some duplicates, ones that are exactly the same, some that are similar, and if you consolidate them all down, boil them all down, you're left with a list of some 40 things that Christians are to do and not do to one another. How many of you are familiar with the list of the one another's? Have you, have you heard of that before? Um, I've come across various lists um, in my life as a Christian, and um, I've never actually written down a list like the one you have in front of you on your notes. But um, it was very helpful to do this, just to go from, again, the Gospels all the way to the book of Revelation and, and look at all the times that the Scriptures say one another. And so what are the one another's of Scripture? Well, let's just read through these. And we don't have to necessarily turn to them. We have the references there, but you have your notes, and you can just read along with me. Number one, be at peace with one another. Number two, wash one another's feet. Number three, love one another. This is the ultimate one another. Uh, this is mentioned or repeated more than any other of the one another's. Love one another. Number four, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Number five, give preference to one another. Number six, be of the same mind toward one another. Verse seven, let us not judge one another. Number eight, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us. Number nine, admonish one another. Ten, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now be careful with that one. Um, if you want to know what that's all about, you just go see Curtis Baldrige. 
he'll straighten you out. He's the only guy I let kiss me because he's too big for me to tell him not to. So I was just like, okay, dude. But he greets me with a holy kiss pretty much every Sunday. And I'm like, okay, what am I going to say? It's biblical. That's what the, the scripture says. That's what they used to do in the, back then is they would greet one another. And uh, apparently I've never, maybe this is one reason why I've avoided Russia, but I, apparently when you go to Russia, they greet you with a holy kiss straight on the lips. Guys, you know, pastors. Oh, Pastor Ramey from America. Good to see you. I'm like, okay, no thanks, brother. I love you, brother, but I'm not. That, that's a cultural thing right there. We don't do that in the U.S. here. But um, apparently they do it. They lay one on you, and uh, you just got to go with it. Um, Eleven, when you come together, wait for one another. They were, again, not unified in communion, 1 Corinthians 11. Number 12, have the same care for one another. Serve one another, 13, 14. If you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. So don't bite and devour, chew each other up. That's so typical of churches, right? There's all this infighting and backbiting and don't do that. It's not helpful. That's not encouraging. 15, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. We're not supposed to do that. Galatians 6, 2, we already mentioned this, bear one another's burdens, show tolerance for one another in love, be patient. 18, laying aside falsehood, speak truth to one another. If you're thinking it, sometimes it's best not to say it, right? It's good to have a filter, but there's times when the most loving thing to do is to say something, to address an issue that needs to be addressed. How about this one, 19? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Number 20, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And that's one of the things that Chris has always emphasized, that we're not just singing to the Lord when we sing these songs. It's scripture says we're singing to one another. We're reminding one another. We're, we're preaching to one another, if you will. We're stirring one another up as we're, as we're saying these lyrics, these biblical lyrics. We're, we're encouraging one another. Verse 20, or, or number 21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Submit to one another. Defer to one another. 22, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. 23, do not lie to one another. Bear with one another. Verse 20, or number 24, verse 25, uh, no, I keep saying verse. 25, teach one another. 26, increase and abound in love for one another, comfort one another, encourage one another. And there's, of course, uh, Hebrews 3.13 and Hebrews 10.25 where we're at, but build up one another. Seek after that which is good for one another. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Do not speak against one another. Do not complain against one another. How about this one, verse 34, number 34, confess your sins to one another. 35, pray for one another. 36, be harmonious with one another. 37, keep fervent in your love for one another. 38, be hospitable to one another without complaint. I mean, that's practical. You say, well, how do I do this? How do I uh, stimulate uh, someone to love and good deeds? How can I encourage them? Well, how about having them over to your house for supper? How about inviting somebody out to lunch? It doesn't have to be in your home necessarily, but say, hey, I'd like to take you to lunch. And, and, and just sit and, and talk about the things of the Lord. I mean, that's a very practical way to apply Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, is show hospitality. 39, employ your spiritual gift in serving one another. So when you come to church and you serve, you use that gift, whether it's the gift of teaching or the gift of helps or the gift of administration or, or, or whatever it is your, your spiritual gift is, you're applying this passage. You're, you're stimulating someone to love and good deeds. As I'm using my spiritual gift of, of teaching and exhortation, hopefully you're being stimulated and stirred up and spurred on in your Christian life. This is just one example. Those of you that have been teaching our, our, our children's ministry and you were teaching even this morning at Sunday school class, you were, you were stirring up those little ones to, to love and good deeds. Maybe your gift is a gift that helps and you were the one that came early and, and, and you made the coffee and you put out the, the snacks and, and guess what? That, you, were, you were helping stimulate others to love and good deeds. Why? Because there was a place. You, you, you created a context, a context 
or a contact point for people to get together, grab a cup of coffee, and talk about, hopefully, the Lord. I mean, it's really practical. 40, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. So this is a good starting place. If you're wondering, how do I actually do this? What does this look like? Well, there you go. Start practicing the one another's of Scripture. Start one anothering one another. And again, it's impossible for us to do this, to, to, to do all these things, to be faithful to all these duties that we have to one another if we don't spend time together. I mean, there's a lot of stuff we're supposed to be doing to one another. And if all, I mean, even if you're just here just Sunday morning for an hour and a half, it's not enough time to get all this stuff in. There's a lot that doesn't get done on a Sunday morning, and that's, of course, why we have small groups, and we have women's Bible study, and men's ministry, and, and student ministry. There, there's, hopefully, we're, we're just creating this, all these contexts, right, for people to get together so they can one another one another. And so all this may not get accomplished or finished in the four walls of this, of this activity center on a Sunday morning. But it may happen out in the foyer. It may happen in the parking lot. It may happen at the restaurant after lunch or, or, or after church today. If you go out to lunch with another family and, and you'll be doing these things together. So again, we need to engage in real relationships, experience, experience true fellowship. Listen, you're to be commended. Okay, I'm kind of preaching to the choir here this morning, if you will. I'm preaching to the congregation that's here. Um, you're to be commended for choosing to wake up this morning and get dressed and drive to a church with all of its problems and weaknesses and frustrations and these yucky other Christians I got to hang out with all the time. I don't even like half of them, right? You're to be commended because you could have stayed home in your pajamas and watched church on TV, listened to something on a podcast. We said that's... Ultimately, those things are to be corporate, and you're missing out on ultimately God's people. But I would say this, just because you're here this morning, or that you come every Sunday, doesn't mean you're off the hook on this, because I think it's possible to attend church every week and never build authentic face-to-face, heart-to-heart relationships, the kind that the New Testament writers had in mind when they were spouting off all these one another's. And you can drink gallons of coffee and eat, eat hundreds of donuts in a lifetime, but never enjoy true fellowship. And I always mention this in our new members class, and I help, help our new members who are coming in to join Lakeside to, to know the difference between fellowshipping and socializing. You know how to tell the difference? Whether you're really fellowshipping or you're just socializing? If you can do it with an unbeliever, you're socializing. For example, I mean, you can go to the Rotary Club or the POA or school board meeting or the neighborhood cookout and you can talk about the weather and you can talk about your job and you can talk about your favorite sports teams or your latest hunting trip or your hobby, your kids. You can do that with, right, with unbelievers. But where socializing turns to fellowshipping is when you, t- when you start talking about the things of God. Start talking about Christ. And when's the last time you asked somebody in this church, had them over to your house or took them out to lunch or even just had a few moments you know, to, to hang out in the hallway, hey, how did you come to know Christ? I don't think I know that. I don't think I've ever heard your testimony. Can, can you tell me? Remind me, refresh my memory. How did you come to Christ again? I mean, what a great question to ask. Um, how about this? What is God teaching you from your study in God's word? What, what are you even praying for? How can I pray for you? That's a great question. How can I be praying for you this week? Who have you been, who have you been witnessing to lately? What, what trials are you facing or what sins, if you're really getting down to it, what sins are you struggling with? There's a joke amongst our elders. There's one elder you never want to go to breakfast or lunch with because the first question he's going to ask you is okay what sin are you struggling with right now 
hey, listen, that's like going from zero to 60 in one second, right? Like, hey, just, let's just get past all the formalities. Let's just talk about indwelling sin. You got it, I've got it. So how are you doing with it? I love that. It's, it's raw. It's just like, yeah, this is real. Let's not be fake and put our little plastic smiles on and act like everything's okay. Let's get into one another's lives. And so don't be content to keep the conversation on a service level. Don't, don't just, again, talk about the stuff the world can talk about. And, and I would encourage you to think about this, evaluate. There's a question there on the application questions. is, is to honestly evaluate your conversations that happen here at church. And, and can you honestly say that what you're doing is fellowshipping or are you just socializing? Because if you're talking about your food allergies or your healthy diet plan or the essential oils or, you know, you fill in the blank, okay? How the Astros are doing, uh, you know, what's going on with J.J. Watt and his back. And, you know, you just you have these conversations about how about terrorism? Going, what about the, what do you think of Trump? And, you know, listen, you can have all those conversations with unbelievers. That's not true fellowship. So, see, we have something special here. So let's leave the socializing for the world and let's do what only we can do and that's fellowship. So let me say this again just to make sure we're all on track here that, that obeying the one another passages all throughout the New Testament requires that we come to church focused on what? Others rather than who? Ourselves. It's about one another. It's about others not about us. And like I've already said, we're not here to be served, but to what? To serve. That's what Jesus said. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for ransom for many. We're not just to look out for our own personal interests, but to look out for the interests of others. That means we shouldn't wait around for others to do these things to us, which is all of our temptation. That's our nature. We come in and we expect to be served. And so we wait around for others to do these things to us. And when they don't, we get hurt and we leave the church. And that happens. And so why not come and take the initiative in doing these things? Don't stand sheepishly off to the side waiting for someone to reach out to you be on the lookout for someone who looks and feels more awkward than you look and feel. Because we all feel that way sometimes, right? We hate that. Have you, have you ever felt that? You, you walk into a room, you don't know anybody, you're just kind of, everybody's engaged in conversation and they're just so glad to be there and you're going, this is really awkward. And you're kind of over here waiting to just engage somebody so you don't feel like a doofus standing over in the corner. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, there's, that happens on, on any given Sunday here at Lakeside Bible Church. There is somebody feeling like a doofus over in the corner. It, it, it happens in any community gathering. And so we should have our radar up looking for those people who look more awkward than we are, <laughs> than we look, or we feel more awkward than we feel. And reach out to them. Walk up to them. Engage them. You say, well, that's really hard. Well, it's hard for them too. That's why they're standing over there looking like a doofus, feeling like a doofus, because they don't know what to do. They don't know how to save. So you take the initiative, and this, it takes sacrifice. And see, when we're, we're intentionally f- focused on and actively engaged in providing encouragement to one another, we don't have time to be critical of the church or to nurse resentment that that, that, that's had you thinking about finding another, another church to attend. Isn't that what happens? We, 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 we get hurt, and then we begin to deal with bitterness and resentment, and we, we, we nurse that, and, and, and then we start thinking, well, maybe I need to find another church, and, 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 and that's just the way it, it goes. Well, listen, if you, don't, you don't have time for any of that. If you're intentionally focused and actively engaged in providing encouragement to others, and I promise you, if you come in looking to encourage others, you'll walk away encouraged. That's just the way God made it work. You can't 
not encourage someone and not be encouraged yourself. It's an encouragement to us knowing that we've been an encouragement to someone else, right? You know what this means? And, and this is, don't miss this, okay? If, you, if I put you to sleep already, listen up, wake up, okay? Listen to this, because this is so, this is a mind shift, big time. Not just for you, it's been a mind shift for me. That you don't need a program or a position to feel like you have a place or a role to play in a church. And I know that there have been some of you over the years, how do I know that? Because you said it to me, that you just feel like there's no place for you to serve. It's like everybody's already doing something, all the holes are filled and you know, there's, there's no position, there's no, there's no, there's no program, there's, no, you know, there's nothing, nowhere for me to fit here. That's very common in churches. And, and I'll be honest with you, when I hear that, somebody shares that with me, I just feel like there's no place for me to fit in here. You know, there, it seems like there's no place for me to serve. You, got, you guys got this thing dialed in. Um, my first thought is, oh, we got to find a position for you. we got to get a program started where you can serve and feel like you have a part. And, and that's just, that's wrong thinking. Why? Because ministry at the end of the day, is simply serving people, caring for people, discipling people. Listen to how Tony Payne and Colin Marshall say it in The Trellis and the Vine. This is a, a great book. We bought many copies of this a few years back when it came out um, and encouraged as many of you to read it as possible. It's called The Ministry Mindshift That Changes Everything. And this is uh, their illustration. This is so helpful. This has like tons of stars all over it in my copy here. He says, let us try to illustrate what these mind shifts mean in practice with just one nitty gritty example. This is so good. Listen, imagine a reasonably solid Christian said to you after church one Sunday morning, look, I'd like to get more involved here and make a contribution, but I just feel like there's nothing for me to do. I'm not on the inside. I don't get asked to be on committees or lead Bible studies. What can I do? What would you immediately think or say? Would you start thinking of some event or program about to start that they could help with, some job that needed, do, needed doing, some ministry that they could join or support? This is how we're used to thinking about the involvement of church members in congregational life in terms of jobs and roles and usher and Bible study leader and Sunday school teacher, treasurer, elder, musician, song leader, money counter, and so on. The implication of this way of thinking for congregation members is clear. If all the jobs and roles are taken, then there's really nothing for me to do in this church. I'm reduced to being a passenger. I'll just wait until I'm asked to do something And then he says the implication for the pastoral staff is similar. Getting people involved and active means finding a job for them to do. In fact, the church growth gurus say that giving someone a job to do within the first six months of their joining your church is vital for them to feel like like they belong. But then they say this. I mean, we can all relate to that, right? I mean, they're hitting the nail on the head right there. They get it. He says this. However, if the real work of God is people work, the prayerful speaking of his word by one person to another. The Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, right? Stimulating one another to love and good deeds. If that's the real work of the ministry, then the jobs are never all taken. The opportunities for Christians to minister personally to others are limitless. So you could pause and reply to your friend. See that guy sitting over there? all by himself? That's Julie's husband. He's on the fringe of things here. In fact, I'm not really sure whether he's crossed the line yet and become a Christian. How about I introduce you to him and you arrange to have breakfast with him once a week and read the Bible together? Or see that couple over there? They're both fairly recently converted and really in need of encouragement and mentoring. Why don't you and your wife have them over and get to know them and and read and pray together with them once a month? And if you still have time and want to contribute some more, start praying for the people in your street and then invite them all to a barbecue at your place. And that's the first step towards talking with them about the gospel or inviting them along to church. How cool is that? So there's no one in this church that can say, hey, I just don't have a place to serve. 
Is there somebody sitting next to you? <laughs> That's a good place to start. Is there a family sitting across the, the, the congregation or over there? That's where you start. You don't need me to give you a position or the elders to create a program for you to unleash your gift necessarily. Unleash, you can be unleashed today. As soon as we close in prayer and sing the last song, you can get right down to ministry and begin thriving in this practical role of reaching out to people, getting to know them, seeing how you can be an encouragement to them. You don't, need to, you don't need me to tell you to do that. God's already told you to do that. Notice this last phrase here. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And we haven't talked about this yet. Notice, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words... As you see the day of Christ's return getting closer and closer, you should be getting together even more. You should be even more focused on this stuff. We need to be treating one another as, as those who will give an account before God and that this thing is almost over and you know we're going to heaven. And listen, back when this letter was written, Christians lived in earnest expectation of Christ's return. I mean, they assumed, and you can get this from all the letters that Paul wrote and others, that they assumed that Christ would come back in their lifetime. And it's been 2,000 years. But it shouldn't change the fact that, that we should assume that Christ will come back in our lifetime. I mean, the, the end times was not... a an academic or polemic issue for these guys. They didn't have a class on eschatology and to learn all the different views of the end times and debate the chronology of the second coming. All they cared about was that Jesus was coming back at any moment and they wanted to be ready. And what better place to get ready than the church, than being with your brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't think I need to say this, but all the crazy stuff that's been happening in our country and around the world the past month or so is a clear indication that the day of Christ's return is drawing near. When you think about the mass shootings in Orlando and Britain leaving the EU, that's historic change to the terrorist bombing and Istanbul airport to the increasing racial unrest in the U.S. to the ambush of police officers in Dallas and Baton Rouge to the unprecedented political upheaval we're watching go down in our country in Washington to, to the truck moving down, mowing down terrorists in, in France to the attempted military coup in Turkey to the latest mall shooting just this last week a few days ago in Munich, Germany. I mean, these are scary and uncertain times in which we live. You can't even feel safe in a place like Bastrop, Texas. But as Christians, we know that Jesus is coming back soon to set up his kingdom and deliver us from this sin-cursed world. And in the meantime, while we wait for his return, as citizens of his heavenly kingdom who will one day reign with him here on earth, we have a place of refuge, an embassy, if you will, where we can go to feel safe and protected and be reminded that this world is not our home. You remember a few weeks ago, one of the seven pictures or metaphors that God used to describe the church is a kingdom. And we are citizens of God's heavenly kingdom and we know Christ is coming back to rescue us and that we will reign with him forever. And again, while we wait for that day, the church serves as our embassy in a foreign country. The Bible says that we are aliens and strangers. And so just like a foreign embassy represents a, a nation inside another nation, you go to the U.S. embassy in Russia and it's like a little U.S. right there, a little sovereign U.S. in that embassy. 
That's considered sovereign territory of your home country, and, it, and it's a place of refuge. It's a place you, you go to, to be protected, to be provided for. If you're a citizen living overseas, right, that's where you go when, when, when things get rough, when the, when, the, when, the, uh, when, when the war breaks out, what do you do? You run to the embassy for safety, for protection. And so the church is the same thing. It's under the sovereign rule of Christ and it's a safe haven for his people as we sojourn in this foreign hostile land as we wait for that day when the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ. And he will reign forever and ever and will have every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I get a email weekly from a preaching ministry. You know, as, as, as a pastor, as a preacher, it kind of gives you ideas and sermon illustrations, things like that. And on a recent uh, email, in light of what's going on in our country and around the world, the question was posed, what do you preach after a week like this? In light of all the things that we've been experiencing, what, what do you preach after a week like this? I don't know, I think that'll preach. About the church being an embassy? I don't know if you ever thought about it that way. Or how about this? Jesus Christ loves us so much that he died not just to provide us forgiveness for our sin and eternal life in heaven, but also to provide us with a group of people with whom we can live life together here on earth until Jesus comes back to get us. And the only way that we will remain steadfast until Jesus comes back in the midst of all the mess that this world is becoming is by regularly gathering together and mutually encouraging and strengthening one another. Listen, we need this more than we've ever needed it before. We need this. You need it. I need it. We need each other. And so if we're serious about being ready for Christ's return, being that beautified, sanctified member of the corporate bride of Christ, then we will get serious about developing these kinds of relationships that we're talking about. And by the way, it's hard to do that on a Sunday morning. And so that's why we have a thing called grow groups, which uh, most of them are on break for the summer. But we're going to kick those off in just a few weeks here at the beginning of the school year. And if you're not already plugged into a grow group, that's the ultimate application of this morning's message. That's where you're going to be able to one another one another. You're going to be able to one another others, and you're going to get one another in the context of a grow group. And so I want to encourage you to be thinking and praying about what grow group you want to plug into. Maybe you're just going to be plugging back into the same one you've been going to for years, or maybe you're going to jump out of that one into a new one, or maybe you haven't been involved in one yet, and you need to get plugged into one. So start praying about which one, and if you need some direction as to which one might be a best, the best fit for you, come talk to me, talk to any of our elders. We, we want to help you uh, plug in so that you can uh, enjoy the encouragement, experience the encouragement of the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, your goodness to us. Lord, we're just thankful for your wisdom and your love in providing us this embassy-like place, a place of refuge as we sojourn as aliens and strangers in this evil foreign land that you've called us out of. And Lord, I pray that we would never isolate ourselves from each other, nor would we isolate ourselves from the world because we know we gather together for the purpose of growing together, for the ultimate purpose of going out of here together to be salt and light in this lost and dying world. And so help us not to miss that in all the focus that we've placed on who we need to be within these four walls. 
that, Lord, even as we leave today, we would remember that this was just a means to a greater end, and that was to, to, to be who you want us to be so that we can be um, a witness for Christ uh, in this world. Lord, as people's hearts are, are maybe more ripe than ever because of all the, the fear and uh, the anxiety that's there in our culture, that we would take advantage of that and that we would be able to have the joy of bringing the good news of salvation to many that we come into contact every, every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.